Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 71. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PetchumTanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fuleman. Hi, everybody. Fuleman, how have you been doing these past couple weeks? I've been pretty good. Uh, we've been working on the top 25, so that's taken up a lot of my internet attention. I don't know if that's the case for you. Have you been in, enjoying the, the fruits of hockey summer? Or? Um, I've read the articles, but like I've on, I'm only writing two articles for this top 25 and both are for people towards the end of the countdown uh, it's actually there's no point there's the, no way i'm spoiling anything by just mentioning that these two players are part of it so i'm writing about travis Dermott and kasperi kapanen who oh yeah all i took and again i think everybody knows these guys are remaining so timothy lilligren and our beloved mitchell marner oh that'll be a fun guys. one i'm excited already uh yeah so we have those we thought we would talk a little bit about those later on in the podcast to some of these prospects that generate so very much discussion. But before that, we recognize that in the litany of mailbag questions, which again, thank you so much for everyone who came in. We had a two hour, three minute podcast and we still didn't get to all of them because one of them we realized came in through a DM to Arvind and I totally forgot about it while I was peeling through other questions. So to make up for that, we actually want to spend some time answering that one because it was a few pretty expansive questions in that one. I think it would be good for us to cover. Yep. Um, so the first one is about Seattle uh, and the upcoming expansion draft. Uh, the expansion draft is in t- summer 2021, and the rules are going to be the same as the Vegas Golden Knights expansion draft. Basically... Uh, you have the option of protecting either seven forwards, three defensemen, and one goalie, or you can pick eight players of any description and one goalie. Um, there are some rules about who you have to expose, and there are certain new players who are exempt. Uh, I'll refer you to Cat Friendly for all the gritty details on that one. But I, I would say that, first of all, given that structure of it, you should not be making major franchise decisions based on your fourth defenseman or eighth forward. It should not be that big a factor in your thinking. It should be even less of one for the Leafs, because according to Cap Friendly, Timothy Liljegren and Rasmus Sandin will still be exempt. So we won't even have to use a protection slot on them in the expansion draft. uh, And will that be the case even if they play this upcoming year? Now that is my understanding from the rules about having two seasons being exempt. Yeah. because the- I'm a little fuzzy on that rule, but as I see it, and as Cat Friendly appears to see it at time of writing, we shouldn't even have to strain ourselves to protect them, yes. which is a huge benefit. It, it, it makes sense because it, both of their ELCs have also slid to this point. Liljegrins mm-hmm. will not from now on. but yes. so, th- so this year is a year of professional experience no matter what, AHL or NHL, but Sandin still will. So yes. Lilligren, no matter what, he's going to have two years of pro experience at the end of these next two years, and Sandin will have either one or two. Mm-hmm. But our estimate is that he should be fine. Uh, if we're wrong, we apologize for misreading Cap Friendly. But even if we are, uh, looking at the roster right now, our exposure is pretty much nothing. Okay, so the four words that you obviously protect from where you're sitting right now are Austin Matthews, John Tavares... William Nylander, Mitch Marner, assuming he eventually does sign, Andreas Janssen, Kasperi Kapanen. That's six. So, uh, sorry, and Alexander Kerfoot. So that brings us to seven. 
that's everyone that you really should be straining yourself over. Like, much as I love Zach Hyman, and again, he's going to be a UFA then anyway, like, you don't really need to reshape your team around protecting anyone after that. On defense, really, it's just Morgan Riley and then a bunch of, we don't know, maybe Travis Dermott by that time, and so that's two. And if we extend one of Jake Muzzin or Tyson Berry, they will have to be protected. And that's it. You know, those are three guys. And then, uh, assuming it's correct that Lilia Grin and Sandin are exempt, there's really not much to worry about on our end. You know, the next defenseman after that is not someone that we really need to worry about. Uh, it's very possibly someone who's going to be making minimum or close to it. And then obviously in net, you protect either Freddie Anderson or if we've had some miracle and Anderson has an obvious successor, by that point, uh, you protect them instead. I think the only way you can really get exposed in the expansion draft is if you have a really, really good fourth defenseman, which most teams don't, and the Leafs sure as hell don't, I'm sorry to say, or if you are so in love with your fourth defenseman that you get a bit stupid about it. And that was infamously the case with the Florida Panthers because for some reason they were over the moon about Alex Petrovich and they were willing to give up multiple good forwards to hold on to him. As long as the Leafs, A, don't suddenly get way better at defense, in which case it's a nice problem to have, and B, don't get really stupid, which I don't think they will, the Leafs should have very little that should be worrying them about the expansion draft. And you mentioned this, you know, when we were chatting off-air before the show started, but the most likely path to the Leafs getting much better at defense is Liljegren and Sanded become much better than we expect, mm-hmm. right? Like, that that's kind of the only way only obvious way we exceed expectations defensively going going forward and if that happens well they're exempt anyway so there's no caveat to that at all it's just we just get to enjoy hey we had two better players than we thought we would have yeah and the same by the way is true if we have some other miraculous draft hit you know like i don't know let's say that uh, miko kokonen turns into everything that we've dreamed about and more then great he's exempt too um I really think that the Leafs right now are set up to have extremely manageable expansion draft exposure. So I would say set your mind at ease on that one. Um, you may recall that the player we lost to Las Vegas was Brendan Leipzig. Uh, at the time, I wasn't happy about that. I have to admit, Brendan Leipzig has been sort of a tweener-ish player, as you would expect. So even then, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> um, you know. I'll be surprised if Seattle ends up doing what Vegas did. I think that was a little bit magical and I think teams are gonna be a little bit smarter this time around because Vegas really benefited from a lot of terrible decision making from teams that didn't really know how to navigate the expansion draft so to sum up yeah uh basically don't worry about it is my bottom line on the whole Seattle thing and uh yeah uh I think we can move forward from there yep uh there was another question that is a little more involved and makes you kind of think about things How would you rank each position in terms of its importance to a team's success? Uh, E.g., is having an elite second-line center more important than having an elite goalie? What would you prefer, an elite 1C or an elite top-pairing right-hand defenseman? Is 3C more important than second-pairing D? Backup goalies, third-line wingers? And so it's just sort of a general thing, and it's expanded saying, where should a team allocate its money? You know, like, what should teams be doing here? This is a fascinating question. For sure. There's a lot going on there. 
And it's a question that's very, very hard to answer as well. Mm -hmm. um, do you want to go ahead? I feel like I talked through the Seattle thing, so I'll defer on this one. Um, I mean, I think it's kind of an impossible question to answer in a lot of ways. When you, I, I, I tend to believe that forwards are more impactful players, generally speaking, than defensemen. And mm -hmm. maybe that's just kind of a bias towards offense because offense is much more visible than defense. But the, the basic idea behind why I think that is because, you know, I, I tend to think of every player exerts influence on the shot rates of each team, right? That every player can suppress and generate shots for and against. And um, to, I, I haven't checked this, but I, my intuition is that like, kind of the magnitude of their effects are somewhat similar, but there is typically a wider range of offensive impact than defensive impact, right? If you look at, for example, mm -hmm. RAPM, uh, and you could, you know, players' impacts on expected goals for in RAPM. So basically, each player isolated, how much do they impact their team's uh, offensive generation? The range for expected goals for is higher than the range for expected goals against. So it's like a tighter distribution for the latter, which means that, you know, the, the best offensive player in the world adds more value through their offense than the best defensive player in the world adds through their defense, right? And that's like regardless of position, I think. I'd have to look into that to make sure, but I, I, I think that's the case. And then going further beyond that, um, forwards have limited but real control over their shooting percentage and their team shooting percentage above expected when they're on the ice. Whereas I don't think on the defensive side, skaters have the same impact. Like I don't think, I, I think their value is in putting people in the right areas of the ice and danger in less dangerous areas of the ice. And then, but once they do that, they're kind of powerless to actually impact how likely they are to um, concede a goal from a shot in that location. Right. Mm. Um, so based on that, I tend to think forwards are more valuable than defensemen. Now, this kind of argument relies on the fact that we can isolate players impacts in a somewhat reasonable way. And, you know, I, I'm a fan of things like RAPM and isolated threat, which attempt to do just that. But there's a lot to be said for the fact that they're not perfect. And it could be you know, mis misconstruing or misevaluating something, you know, the way I'm looking at it right now. Um, but I, I, I tend to, that's kind of my thought process ab about player value, about skater value, at least. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, very much so. I think that on a basic level, defense has a bigger team component. And this is getting very big picture, and I'm talking a little kind of broadly here, but defense in hockey is mostly about structure and your ability to know where you're supposed to be in that structure. Offense, especially in the modern game, is often about your ability to break structure, to make the other team make a mistake, to sucker them out of position so a passing lane opens, to do something like that where you are breaking the game, making it more unpredictable and chaotic so that there's an opportunity for you to pounce. I think defense is more coached for that reason. That's a really hard thing to prove 
And I want to emphasize that. Um, I mean, an anecdotal example would be the New York Islanders, who had a very significant improvement in defense under Barry Trotz. Um, but it's hard to quantify. All the same, I think that the guys who really add the most value are going to be the guys who can overcome the structure of a defense, whether through shooting, their ability to get in position, to be deceptive, uh, to do any of those kind of magical things. And that's harder to coach. Not impossible. You can't you know, rule out that you can train a guy to get better at that. But those guys who have that really elite, elite value at that are kind of worth their weight in gold. Um, I may certainly be biased because the Leafs team strategy is kind of involved in investing very heavily in those players. And we've kind of left defense a little bit behind. So it's certainly something to think about. But my basic thinking would be that goals for are worth more than trying to pay for a reduction in goals against. I think you get more value that way. Now that said, if you're trying to build a team on the cheap, like the Carolina Hurricanes, who I think are the best example of this, you might be better off investing it in defense because you can get to a good team, to even a very good team, much more cheaply by investing in defensemen who are well-chosen, which is what I think that they've done. Because goals also cost money. You know, they are more valuable. They're easily measured, and so they're seen to be more valuable. And so I think there is a trade-off there. In the end, in terms of how you want to build your team, it's kind of you probably as, I mean, I think this comes back to what you were saying, is if you can add value above replacement somewhere, then you do it. And that's kind of the bottom line there. We've talked a lot, actually, in recent weeks about paying for goaltending, and I think it's very hard to consistently pay for really above average goaltending. Like, I can think of very few goaltenders who were consistently really good over the life of a term contract. Roberto Luongo, for much of his career, was an exception. Uh, Henrik Lundqvist, for much of his career. But there's so much year-to-year variation that I think it's harder to just pay for, you know, three wins above replacement in net or what have you. Um, in a given year, you might get it. You might get more than that. You might get extraordinary value out of your goaltending because the guy had a great year. But the year-to-year variability means you're a lot less certain than what you're paying for. Yeah, and I mean, I think there's a case to be made that someone like Dominic Hasek in his prime mm. was, like, for five to six years, he was the most valuable player in, in the world. And, you know, those five to six years might even stack up with, like, you know, Wayne Gretzky-type years when you look at how valuable... Because goalies are by far the most important uh, single position because they influence so much, mm-hmm. right? It's just, you. it's hard to rely on them. A, a consistently good goalie, if you could guarantee a goalie that would be, like, top five in the league every year, the way you can guarantee Connor McDavid's going to be, you know, for sure one of the five best skaters in the world for the next, like, ten years, more or less, mm-hmm. um, that goalie would be ridiculously valuable, right? That'd be the single most valuable player in the league, I think. Right? When, mm-hmm. when you look at war models or, or, or GAR models, um, and you look at it any given season, the, the the highest value players are almost always goalies who had great years. Yeah. Right? It's just, it's very, very hard for goalies to consistently have great years. When you have, you know, prime Hasek, that's not the case. So it, over, you know, those, his six or seven prime years, Hasek was probably the most valuable player in the world. Right. 
and you know, I think it's it's legitimate to say like if you can predict that value, um, that's the best place to get it. But as we were saying, like you just you can't, you know, even guys like Carey Price, who was a few years ago the bulletproof best goalie on the planet. You know, he won the Hart Trophy, which they generally do not award to goaltenders. Um, and then he had a couple of down years for injury and his contract looked like an albatross. Now he's back to being pretty good. Will, will he be next year? Damned if I know. And, you know, so that kind of year-over-year variability, I guess when we, we talk about, you know, you're trying to buy value at any position, uh, goalies are a bit of a highly volatile stock. It's just really bloody hard. If you can find someone who's consistently good and you can get them at an affordable rate, that is, I would say, kind of the ideal for goaltending. Like, that should be the objective, almost, of goaltending. I think with Freddie, we've mostly had that for a few years now. Just steady, quality play. And that's a huge asset for a team that's trying to contend, for sure. Mm-hmm. When you look at, like, backup goalies, like, that, that's... It's one of those things where like 95% of the time they're useless and mm-hmm. 5% of the time it really, really, really matters. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I tend not to think it's that valuable. The, the reality is if your starter goes down, first off, if you're if you're like a non-play, this is assuming you're a contending team, right? If So for a team like the Leafs, a, a team that sees themselves as a contender, they just need their backup to like not completely shit the bed during the regular season. Yeah. Right, and uh, didn't exactly work out that way last year. Shot, shot of Garrett Sparks like, fishing a buck out of the net. Yeah. But yeah. Um, yeah, so they, they just need their backup to like be competent enough to win like half their games. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, or, or even actually just get a points percentage of 500, which is an even lower, you know, even lower bar. Um, but. When you get to the case where, like, oh, you know, our, our, our starter went down in the playoffs and we want to have a backup that can actually give us a chance to win, that's really, really hard to find, I think. I, I, and I think in most cases, you just... The, the, the spread of NHL goalies is quite narrow. So, you're all, you know, you're choosing from the, the, the 25th to 60th best goaltenders in the world. And, like, you're just kind of hoping that whichever guy it is, he gets hot at the right time. I'm not sure there's that mm-hmm. much science to it. Especially because... I don't really think you should allocate a ton of money to like the disaster scenario of oh, our starter's gone down, but we still want to make sure that we're a contender. Because realistically, that's n- not a terribly likely thing. No. You want the best I goaltender that... you can find who is also like dirt cheap. Yeah, it's <laughs> always that trade off there. Um, I can think of a lot of examples of teams attempting to buy quality goaltending for a playoff run. And that, like, really blowing up on them. Uh, the easiest example is Ryan Miller, who was a deadline trade to St. Louis. St. Louis, before their current uh, championship run, had a long stretch where they had good teams that got sewered by bad goaltending. And so one year they paid a ransom at the trade deadline for Ryan Miller. And Ryan Miller was, and almost still is, a pretty good goalie. In his prime, he was a great goalie. But in the first round, he had kind of an off series, and he put up 897, and St. Louis lost in six, and that was the end of that. And, you know, that's one example, but I think that that's kind of a good illustration of just trying to buy goaltending for a specific circumstance like that is a crapshoot. 
Like, you really want a good, reliable starter. It would be nice if you had a good backup, but I wouldn't spend a ton of money on it. It's like paying money and... for a slightly weighted coin and then determining how good a purchase that is by flipping it once. Yeah, exactly. If it's going to be 53% heads, it's like, well, how much money do you want to spend on the 53% heads coin? You know? So, yeah, I think that this is sort of... Uh, a general team building philosophy thing. But I think that when you get into the real world, uh, very few teams are entering in a vacuum. Seattle will, in a sense, enter in a specific way, but even then they're going to be governed by what's available to them. And that comes around to you do the best with what you can, um, with what options you have in front of you. If your team has a hell of a run on defensemen in the, in the draft, then that affects how you should proceed that affects who you should spend money on and how you should look at things going forward you know how you should try to cost control your team and so i don't think there's any hard and fast rule for where you should try and get value that's going to survive different circumstances i would say it's all incredibly context dependent but they also cost the most and let me put it this way to sum up i guess i think the way the Leafs have done it makes sense for a team in the Leafs' circumstances, which is one, they got high draft picks on forwards, and two, they have a hell of a lot of money. I think the way that Carolina has done it, which is to be very smart and to get strong shot differential defensemen, uh, makes a lot of sense if you've, one, found a lot of good defensemen, and two, you're a bit broke. So, mm-hmm. kind of different roads to the same thing there. I, I recognize that that's a bit of a a well it depends answer but i think that that's the honest one yeah and, and even now we're, we're we're we know we're heavily oversimplifying because you you can't mm-hmm. or, you, or you can kind of isolate players to some extent you can attempt to do it but like the reality is even the estimates that we have of players isolated impacts they're not it's not always going to be the same right like players have different skills that work well with others and won't work as well with with different types of players like it's not like you know so, someone with an RIPM of whatever, it doesn't mean in every single situation we think they're going to do that. I, I don't think we have removed all context from that, and I'm not sure it's possible to, right? No. Um, because I, I do believe that chemistry does exist, that there are kind of like non-linearities in how players interact. And like it, it could very well be that unless you have a base level of competent defensemen, all the best forwards in the world won't help you because, you know, you just need your defensemen to have some sort of level of ability to get the puck to them and Without that, they're completely useless, right? So, I mean, mm-hmm. hockey's a complicated sport uh, in this way. It, I, so we know we're being kind of, we're, we're, we're simplifying this because otherwise it'd be impossible to ha- make any sort of insight at all. And I think I stand by what we say here. I, th- I think broadly what we say holds, but of course, you know, you have to include the complexity that is, you know, different players interacting with one another in, in kind of in different ways that, means that it's not as simple as, you know, adding up whatever you think their impacts on their own might be, right? Like a a two-war player isn't necessarily a two-war player in every single uh, context with our current, you know, metrics, right? Like, obviously, yeah. if you talk about a platonic ideal of a two-war player, then yes, by definition, they're a two-war player everywhere. But the reality is we, we can't um, ascertain that sort of uh, that that kind of value to a player with that level of precision and, I guess, certainty, if that makes sense. 
Yeah. I think, you know, this is fun stuff and we're kind of geeks and all this sort of stuff. And we like the philosophical element, but you have to recognize, you know, if your GM comes to you and your his advisor say, and he says, okay, should we go sign Jake Gardner or no? The answer to that isn't just how many war does Jake Gardner have? That can inform it. That can say he's a good player, which he is. You should sign Jake Gardner, I think, <laughs> in a lot of circumstances. But uh, you have to look at a lot of factors. And this was sort of the first part of the question, which was, okay, is a 2C worth more than an above average starting goalie? Like, where do you get that value? And we've kind of said, like, look, it's kind of tricky to make any dependent you know guess here you want to get value wherever you can but there is a point where the wins you're getting at a given position are not as many as you could get somewhere else and you mentioned this before we went on air in terms of the cadre for berry trade like that's a great example of we weren't maybe getting maximum value out of nazan cadre and the abs weren't getting maximum value out of tyson berry or they suspected that they were not going to in the future so, yeah, I think that, you know, that is something to look into. And certainly if you have a guy who you're really convinced you're underplaying, um, you can consider, okay, do we move him up the lineup? Should we move out someone else for help elsewhere? Uh, you can certainly look at rebalancing your lineup that way. But it's going to be very context-specific. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, I, I think you can broadly look at it, you know, with things like war. And, 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 it makes, and it, it'll broadly make sense. Right, maybe, and we haven't dug into the numbers on this in our long-standing efforts to do literally zero research when we're whenever we do a podcast. Um, <laughs> but you know, maybe if you looked into it, you, you'd be able to see that, like, okay, the distribution of WAR among centers is such that the thirty-first to sixtieth best centers are typically more valuable than the you know thirtieth to forty-fifth best defenseman or something or whatever right you can pick and choose those numbers however you want um and maybe that's the case right and and if it's like a significant amount then that can maybe that is actually that would actually i think be informative or it'd be something you know even if i wouldn't use that as my sole evidence to claim something it'd be something to think about and something to look into further and try and refine it can be a really good starting point for that sort of thing um Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's an interesting question because it's so tough because you have to try and isolate players in a way that is very, very difficult to do, even with the, you know, inroads we've made into doing just that. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the one thing that occurred to me, and it's kind of instinctive, so I didn't want to lead with it. But the thing that always occurs to me in team building is if you can get a high end first line center, get a high end first line center, full stop. And... It's not quite that simple, but those players are so hard to come by and they're so valuable, in my opinion, that you really ought to chase them in any opportunity. Yeah. It, or in short, sign John Tavares. It's kind, it's kind of interesting <laughs> because I, I get the sense that, you know, for a long time people argued exactly that, especially looking at, okay, look at the teams that have won the cup, right? It's like, okay, mm-hmm. well, Chicago had a dynasty. They had Jonathan Taves, Pittsburgh's obviously, then Walton, they have two elite centers in, in Malkin and Crosby, right? And then this year, I think people are kind of saying, oh, you know, but Ryan O'Reilly isn't exactly that sort of player. Um, and I think that kind of underrates the type of player that Ryan O'Reilly is, right? And I, I've been thinking really about this good. more and more. <laughs> actually, we could we could probably talk about this when we have Alan on the podcast because he was actually a big influence in me starting to think this way. But it's like, we need to stop caring about points so much, 
basically. <laughs> like, Ryan O'Reilly is, over the past few years, he has been ridiculously good, right? And just because he doesn't put up absurd point totals doesn't mean that he's he's not, you know, an unbelievably good player. I, I think, I honestly think you can argue that he is a similar level player as John Tavares. Because his defensive impact is so immense. Yes. I mean, and he did, to, for the record, he put up 77 points yeah, this he, year, which is he's not exactly, extremely good. He's not exactly Jared Smithson, right? Yeah, <laughs> not quite. But, I mean, like the, again, we'll talk about this more with, with Alan, but like, to me, the important thing about players is what they do to drive goal differential. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. And Tavares does that brilliantly, primarily through his offense, because he generates a bunch of shots for his team. And because he is an incredibly talented finisher and an incredibly talented passer, a lot of the shots that he creates become goals. Mm-hmm. Um, O'Reilly is not as talented offensively as Tavares, but he is incredibly good defensively, and he has real, like a real ability to suppress quality chances against, suppress the number of chances against, and also produce good offense. And if you look at, for example, his RAPM, his goals for RAPM, which is essentially what is O'Reilly's impact on goals for and goals against over the past three years. So, I mean, look, this can still be noisy. We're still looking at a goal-based metric, but it's over three years, so it's like a fairly decent sample. His Mm -hmm. um, estimated isolated impact on goals is almost double what John Tavares' is. And to be clear, Tavares' impact is highly positive. He grades out as excellent by this. It's just that O'Reilly's really, really, really good. Mm Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Like I haven't thought about them with respect to one another in particular, but like my point is, this past year does not disprove the oh you need a star first line center to win because Ryan O'Reilly is a star first line center. Yeah, I think that's entirely fair. And for the record, you know, I was saying earlier, I think defense is more structural. This is more coached. Um, You know, elite talent tends to show more at forward. However, when you're really, really, really good. As a two-way center, the way that Ryan O'Reilly is, and when your offense is still quite good, you know, that does still matter. That does still make a huge difference. And so, I mean, maybe this is just a long way of laughing at the Buffalo Sabres, actually, because that trade was so bad. It was awful. <laughs> oh, I, I smile every time I think about it, honestly. Um, just absolutely awful. Anyway, but the don't only focus on points or don't overweight points thing. It's like a tough thing to get around because people are like, okay, uh, I actually, I saw someone give this response to you when you said this online. They were like, oh yeah, what is this? A goal scoring competition? And of course the comeback is like, well, it's an outscoring your opponent competition. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not quite the same thing. Um, and, and so it's just a question of emphasis there because, but goals and assists are easy to notice. They're easy to count. The NHL tracks them. They're easy to divide out. And uh, they're going to get Mitch Marner paid, for example, with reason up to a point. But I think that you're definitely on to something in terms of how that skews our value of players. And is this a good place for me to segue, segue into Timothy Lilligren? Because um, I can totally do that. One, one, <laughs> one quick thing before we do. I actually am just looking this up yep. right now. Like, the, If I'm looking at the top 10 in forwards in goal impact by RIPM over the past three years. And I'm looking at players who have like 2,000 minutes over this time. So basically to weed out small samples. The top 10 for forwards is McDavid, Stone, Couturier, Crosby, Radulov, Hall, Panarin, William Carlson, uh, Mark Scheifele, and then Ryan O'Reilly. 
top 10. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty good list. Like that, that's that's a list of players who you expect to see at the top, right? Like it, it, William Carlson is is kind of the the weird one there. He had that crazy year. He looks much worse when you look at expected goal impact, right? He had that crazy shooting year, his first year in Vegas. If you look past number ten, you get Kyle Palmieri and Andrew Kopp, which are, who are two kind of weird guys. Um, Palmieri, <laughs> especially, he doesn't look particularly good via uh, expected goals, but he is known as a good shooter. So he, he has some value over that. I wouldn't rank him as the 11th best forward in the world, but... I will lie. Andrew Kopp is insane to me. Yeah. Like, that's just a clean miss by the, the model, and that's fine. Well, uh, the happens, thing is, Kopp's, uh, his he's one of those guys who's put up, like, ridiculously good possession numbers in, like, kind of smallish roles, right? I don't think... Not smallish, but, like, yeah. third-line-ish roles. I'd have, <laughs> have to look it up. So it's, it's, it's weird, where it's like, you look at his numbers, and they're objectively quite impressive, but then you're like, okay, but he's primarily doing this against depth players on opposition teams, right? And it is very much, you know, I talked about this. I'm, I'll, I'll talk about this when we talk about Travis Dermott, who also looks very nice by these models, um, these isolated threat and, you know, RAPM models, these regression-based models to isolate uh, a player's ability to, to drive play, like independent of their teammates and their context and their competition. I think they do kind of struggle a bit with these guys who play a lot of depth minutes um like and beat up on on easy competition regression mm. models i have to be careful with what i say here because i haven't planned this out and i want i'd like to be kind of precise in what i say when it comes to these sorts of mathematical things um mm-hmm. regression models are good at dealing with situations where there is lots of data where the data is like very very robust and well when there's a lot of um samples of players going against every other type of player but if you spend limited time against kind of high-end players i feel like it the model can kind of get a bit confused in that respect or not confused it's not a sentient being but like it, it has a harder time sussing out the signal from the noise when there is comparatively less data of a player against higher level opponents and you know it, when there's less data against that, like there, there could be other things skewing it. You know, Tyler Dello raised a point uh, in one of his last articles, uh, not one of his last, but like um, it was an article last summer that like not all shifts against top players are equal because sh- um, they may, player X may start their shift, you know, a certain point into, say, Connor McDavid's shift. And if you start closer to the end of Connor McDavid's shift, it's not going to be as tough a shift that's starting towards the start of Connor McDavid's shift right Mm -hmm. so I I do think and this is you know kind of eye testy and it it, you know when when you create a model you should use that model you shouldn't make your own kind of subjective additions and subtractions from that model really but yeah Mm -hmm. looking at this model someone like cop stands out because it's like okay like I don't trust that he would do the exact same thing when placed in a more significant role. Yeah. I, th- this is the thing is that, and you know, some of this is just when I look up Andrew Cobb, I'm like, hey, that guy's never had 30 points and he's a forward. So as much as I'm saying, uh, don't go crazy on, on points, don't overweight points. Uh, I do, you know, we rely on some of these things as a bit of a sanity check almost. For like when we see something in a model or an advanced statistic where you're like, hey, is that make sense? And so 
I do think that there are a lot of these depth forwards who put up terrific results against other depth forwards. And, uh, you know, for the record, Andrew Kopp has played a below average amount of time against top lines, for example. Mm-hmm. That does give me pause. But uh, Yeah, and, and I mean, also to be fair to Kopp, he doesn't play with incredibly strong line mates either, right? And that, that's something that also no. factors in. But yeah, like the, the, these models... Not at all. These models so. do, I think, sometimes overrate this type of player. Uh, Yisperi Kotkaniemi is another one in the start of like a minor Twitter war last year, right? Where where someone said, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I would consider voting Kotkaniemi for the Selkie because he had really good defensive numbers. And when even when you adjust for his easy usage, the, the numbers were still mm-hmm. very strong. But it, something just doesn't quite sit right about saying like, oh, yeah, this guy completely blanketed that third line center for the entire year. Let's give him the Selkie. It, it feels wrong to reward that sort of play. Versus, you know, a player yeah. like like O'Reilly, for example, who takes on top lines and then shuts them down. And maybe maybe not to the same degree, and maybe his defensive numbers, when you count for usage, don't look as nice. But to me, it doesn't quite pass the sniff test. Mm-hmm. Right? And then others would argue that, like, you know, it's it's not Kakanyemi's fault. He plays weak competition, right? He He's doing literally everything he can to, like, blow them up and make them really, really awful. And that still has value, but, like... I don't know, it's, you know, I still certainly still do struggle with that. So I'm not saying, like, take take all these models as gospel and don't think about, you know, their potential weaknesses. I I do think they have kind of a a potential weakness here. There's no amount of fancy math that can really cover for a lack of of data, right? And the the classic Mm -hmm. example of that is, like, even with these models, we we don't know how good the Sedins were away from each other. Right, because right. they, they never spent appreciable time. And we never will. <laughs> away, yeah, we, they never spent appreciable time away from each other, right? And so if you don't spend a decent amount of time in a lot of different scenarios, then the, these can be a little bit wonky. And the, as far as I know, they still don't account for that shift timing thing that I mentioned, which may have a big impact. Right. It may not. I'm not sure. Um, yeah. So Tyler Dello, before he got hired away by New Jersey, uh, that was one of his things that he liked to bring up was that is a way of uh, skewing usage a little bit mm-hmm. in terms of getting to come on against higher lines. And just FYI, actually, I think this is another thing that will be relevant to our later topic, but Travis Dermott and Igor Ozaganov often got on against tired lines. Yes. Thanks to Mike Babcock. Exactly. So so something so something so to think about. Yeah, so it, it makes it seem like, oh, you're facing tough competition, but you're facing a diminished version of tough competition. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so it, the models wouldn't necessarily account for that uh, appropriately. I think they might have included that in a later version of their model. Uh, by they, I mean maybe Evolving Wild. I, I remember mm. discussing with him briefly, and he said the, the impact was like uh, they, they tried to account for it, and the impact was like noticeable, but not huge. It wouldn't change any broad scale conclusions. So mm. yeah, it's 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 one of those things that's hard to say. Like may, maybe maybe you and I are just wrong, and yeah, Andrew Kopp actually is like crazy good, and we're just like not appreciating it. Yeah, you never know. I, I mean, actually dialing back around to Vegas or something, I wouldn't have predicted several of those players to do what they did. Um, you know, the funny one to laugh at Florida over is Jonathan Marchessault, who was obviously very good um, before they let him go, but like. I don't think anyone quite foresaw William Carlson becoming what he became. I don't know that that was even foreseeable. So, you know, there's still 
a lot of difficulty in determining how players will react when they get more opportunities, and many of them are not going to get those opportunities. We're not going to know. So, yeah. Apologies to Andrew Kopp, I guess. For all I know, he's actually a Selkie forward in the making. But, um... Yeah. All this stuff is very interesting, and yet it leaves us with a lot of questions as much as answers. So, I hope we've at least done something to kind of walk through it, even if we haven't been as firm and definitive as... (laughs) Maybe might be yeah, the, the, the short version of it is that these regression-based models are, are very, very useful, but like any regression-based model, they are going to not be as um, accurate and as good at estimating impacts where there is less data, mm-hmm. right? So that, 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 that's all it comes down to. So players with kind of skewed, very, very skewed usage and players with small samples are always going to be tricky. And yeah, we'll, we'll discuss that. Yeah. We'll probably discuss that when, when, again when we go to Travis Dermott. But you wanted to talk first about Timothy Lilligren. Or actually, do you want to do Brocco first? Uh, yeah, why don't we do Jeremy Brocco? Jeremy Brocco was uh, already written up in our top 25, whereas Lilligren and Dermott haven't appeared yet. But uh, Jeremy Brocco was the top scoring forward on the Toronto Marlies last season. He came in at number 12 on our top 25 countdown. But the piece was written by Hardev who writes for our site, who follows the Marlies quite closely. He regularly attends games and writes them up. Uh, I would consider him a very good and reliable source on that. And he is very skeptical of Jeremy Bracco, despite all those fancy points. And so he gave a number of reasons for this. One, Bracco is very, very good on the power play, like elite on the AHL power play. And that's where he makes most of his money. But as a five-on-five player, he's less productive He's not terrific defensively, and he's not especially big or especially fast. He's talented. He's a great passer. But Hardev's point was basically those limitations have to be addressed, or he probably won't be an NHL player. And that caused, I'm going to say, a lot of people to be upset. (laughs) We had 447 comments at last count on that article. Um, and several of them were not uh, best pleased with what Hardev produced. But I think it's interesting to look at a player like that and to say, what is the totality here? And a lot of people are just going to say, look, he had a shit ton of points. That can't be denied. And, you know, points are good. Points are important. They are an indicator of contribution, as you indicated. And he had 79 of them. That's a lot of any way you slice it. At the same time, I think that because people don't watch the Marlies on a regular basis, because they don't have any deeper interaction, they just look at points and say, okay, slot them right in. And I think it's a little more complicated than that when evaluating prospects. I definitely have seen players like this before. And maybe not exactly like this. Maybe that's not wholly fair. But like guys like Seth Griffith, who seemingly were constantly on the verge of making it, who were right there, who were even productive in small NHL samples sometimes, but who could not quite seem to stick in the league. Uh, The classic name for them is quadruple A players. You know, they're too good for the level below, but they're not good enough for the level below. Above, excuse me. And I wonder a bit about that with Brocco. And the risk of it there is that if Brocco does break in, and does get a real opportunity to employ his talents, which means, you know, considerable power play time, 
he could put up numbers. You know, I don't think that's out of the question. It's just a question of, is he ever going to get that chance? Will he get that chance in Toronto? Will he get it somewhere else in the NHL? Or will he be a player in other leagues for his career? That's a really tough thing to gauge. But there was a time where I maybe would have been more skeptical of that sort of stuff and said, look, his points are too much to be denied. I think experience has made me a little bit more cautious on those players. And I still ranked him higher than most of the rest of the Mastiff. Yeah, I, I mean, he's I ranked talented, him, but... I think, at 11, which... Um, so did I. Yeah, so... Surprise. Uh, well, that's not <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I'm gonna try to disagree. The thing more. is, I, I think it's very understandable for play for people to be higher on Brocco than than Hardev is. Hardev ranked him like in the late teens or maybe even twenties, and I, even with the how he explained the article, I don't I don't agree with that. That that seems like too low a ranking. Yeah, I, I think that that was uh, that was a very skeptical ranking. And again, he's more familiar with him than we yes. are. It's just uh, that seemed vi- that did seem low to me. Yeah. So, but like, so Kevin Papetti and and Scott Weider, they kind of they were discussing this with with heart of you know via PPP comments and Twitter comments, and I think both are higher on Brocco than 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 heart of is, which I think both of us are as as well. The the issues they mentioned that, that Kevin mentioned anyways is. You know whether Brocco is going to be able to kind of succeed in the same way against higher level opposition. He is a tremendous passer. He is a tremendous power play quarterback. Um, he does have mm-hmm. real talent, um, but you know can he gain the zone against higher level defenders? He is a player who has a very very low shot rate. So even though he does score, you know he gets a lot of assists. It doesn't mean that um, he's he gets a lot of his points in a very particular way, right? And that might limit him going forward. So, yeah, it, it, it's it's not, I think, so simple to... Like, I, I don't think people who who disagreed with Hardiv are, are wrong, really. I, I think there's kind of a lot of room for reasonable minds to, to differ on this. Brocco seems like a guy who has a lot of really excellent skills and then some notable flaws that prevent him from being a sure thing right he certainly mm-hmm. could make it um but it wouldn't be surprising if he kind of topped out as a pretty low level nhl player or, or not an nhl player at all the other thing with um Bronco is that he he is perhaps on the worst team for his nhl hopes mm-hmm. right um and by that i mean he is completely and unequivocally blocked by three players who play his position ahead of him, right? Uh, he is not better than William Nylander. He's not better than Mitch Marner. He's not better than Kasperi Kapanen. He's better at individual mm-hmm. things um, than them, right? You could argue he is a better passer than uh, Nylander or um, Kapanen. Scott Wheeler, in fact, argued that exact thing, which was another one of those statements that I think was quite reasonable to make, but people made fun of him because it was Scott saying it. Um, yeah, same as it ever was. Yeah. Uh, Kevin agrees with, with Scott on that, by the way, that he, he he says Brocco is probably the second best passer in the Leafs organization besides Mitch Marner. Um, but like, regardless, his overall package isn't as good as e- any of those guys. Right? Mm-hmm. So, well, where's he going to play? You can play him on the fourth line right wing, but... At, and, and, you know, this can be considered actually a flaw of Brocco's. He's not that versatile. 
he has a particular set of skills which are really elite and then he doesn't necessarily provide value in other ways right he is a tremendous passer someone who can really get the puck onto um, his teammates stick in the offensive zone someone who has some ability to gain the zone although it's questionable whether that is going to work in in, in the nhl but you, you want to play him with finishers right and you're not by definition mm-hmm. fourth line players aren't really good finishers because if they were good finishers they'd probably not be fourth liners yeah right so he's a type of player who needs to be in a particular situation to succeed it seems like or, or at least to get the most out of him and then People say, well, you know, we can play, we have finishers. You can play him with Austin Matthews. You can play him with John Tavares or whatever. And this gets into the trap that I think people fall into sometimes. And it happens with Austin Matthews as well, where it's like the Leafs don't exist to make Austin Matthews the the Hart Trophy winner. We don't exist to Mm -hmm. make sure Jeremy Bracco is in the best position to succeed. We exist to maximize the team's chances of winning. Right? Mm -hmm. So, yes, you could say that Bracco would succeed in a given role. Um, if you play him with maybe Zach Hyman and Austin Matthews, yeah, maybe he does succeed there. He probably would, right? Matthews would be yeah. is the perfect player to take advantage of his passing. Hyman can do a lot of the dirty work that Bracco isn't perhaps as adept at. Um, that that seems like a line that could be something. But is it better than the same line with Nylander there? Almost certainly not. Mm-hmm. So 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 then like okay, well then why why do we put him there then? The the answer is you wouldn't. So Brocco yeah. might be in that situation where for the Leafs, he's not good enough to displace anyone who he's not good enough to displace anyone uh, who is taking the role that he would succeed in. And he's not versatile enough to succeed in the role that he would have to get of being behind those guys. So he might be a player that is less valuable to the Leafs than to a lot of other teams. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that's about the size of it. And that's why it makes him so tough to evaluate because he seems like the classic top six or bust player, right? Where if he does make it, I could see Jeremy Bracco turning into a 50-point player. I'm not predicting that. I'm not saying that's the most likely outcome. But I'm saying it's a lot less out of the question for him than it is for some forward prospects. And so it's just a question of, is he going to get, get to a level where someone legitimately gives him that opportunity and keeps him there? Or is he not going to? And if he doesn't, I feel like then we fall way short. It's very hard to uh, to rate these players who have such sort of disparate cases. You know, it's not like a linear thing where it's like, if he's this good, he'll get this many NHL games. And then it scales. It's really, Jeremy Bracco could be something very special, but he probably won't be, is I guess where I would say I land on it. And that's still worth something. That's still worth a lot, but it's not um, not a given there. So I think that's partly why he drives such discussion. And then obviously Hardev's opinions on him are very strongly in the negative direction, which people don't like to hear, frankly. So, yeah. All right, so that, I think that's probably enough on Brocco. You wanted to talk about Lilligren a bit. Yeah, I'm teasing mostly the upcoming Timothy Liljegren piece that I wrote, but I would say I think Timothy Liljegren has maybe fallen back in the popular consciousness a little bit, even if you're someone who cares about Leaf prospects, because Rasmus Sandin has surpassed him, it's probably fair to say. Uh, Sandin put up a ton of points last year, and he looked very cool. He's shiny and new, and Timothy Liljegren put up two fewer points. He settled for 15, 
He had an injury midway through the year that caused him to miss the World Juniors and several games. And he just generally maybe didn't dazzle to the extent that people are used to. And again, points go a long way to that. I would say people maybe even have swung a little too far in the other direction on Liljegren. He was overrated to the skies probably by a lot of us. When he got drafted, a lot of people uh, were very much in love with his abilities. But I think now people have just sort of forgotten him because he's no longer the new hotness. And I don't think that's fair because I think his development as a defensive defenseman in the AHL is worth something. Uh, it's not like he's becoming, you know, like a Coke machine defenseman either. He's doing it with his agility and his improving sense for the game. And he just turned 20. You know, I think all of this stuff adds up to a player that you can be optimistic about without really being kind of nuts. And I think maybe as people have kind of had to scale back their hopes from, oh, we got the next Eric Carlson, they might have gone all the way to, is this guy even really worth all that much anyway? I think that he's going to be an NHL player, and frankly, we do not have enough right-handed defensemen in the organization who we can say that about. Um, so I would say maybe almost uniquely among a lot of the prospects in the top 25 People are a little too low on Lilligren right now. There's a lot to hope for there. I'll expand on it more in the article, but yeah, bit of sunshine on that okay, one. Okay, that's good to hear. Yeah, because I mean, I don't follow Lilligren, right, because I don't watch the Marlies, so it'll be good to, to learn more about that. I say that as if I haven't already read the article. <laughs> yes, surprises await, obviously, yeah. but yeah, so keep an eye out for that. Yes, and then I, I'll be discussing... I'll be writing up Travis Dermott. So that article, again, it's already written, although it won't go up, I guess, till sometime next week uh, or the week after or the week after that. Who knows? Maybe he's number one. Um, <laughs> but when say? it comes to Dermott, I, I guess he, he's one of those guys where he – I think there was some disappointment about his season last year, and it primarily has to do with kind of what didn't happen as opposed to what did because we didn't see him blossom into that top four guy, and he wasn't – necessarily given a huge opportunity to he he spent a lot of his time kind of in the uh in the, in the Leafs bottom pair and I'll touch on this in the article actually I'll go into it in some depth in the article but the way the Leafs use their defensemen is like they have four adults and then they have a, ki- a kids table which is the bottom pair mm-hmm. and Dermot was like straddling the kids table and the adult table in a sense like he was clearly played more than whoever his partner was regardless of who that was and he, he was clearly played mm. far less than any of the f- uh, four defensemen above him or five in the brief window where we had Jake Muzzin and Jake Gardner healthy right so it makes him hard to evaluate because his numbers are spectacular when you look at his uh, what he's done in terms of tilting uh, shot share and expected goal share when he's on the ice and he, he's doing this with not incredibly talented teammates um and against not very good competition either but it's a question of okay well how do you weight that right and how do you determine okay is this guy ready to actually become a second pairing guy because even if you say his baseline is an elite third pair guy that's what he's going to be going forward an elite third pair guy is nice to have but he's still an elite third pair guy his value is limited inherently by the position and the role in the lineup that he's playing right Mm mm-hmm so the, the real question is, can you take that step up? 
Now, Dermot's one of those guys where if you look at things like isolated threat and RAPM, he looks brilliant by them, right? So even accounting for his easy usage mm-hmm. and the fact that he should be dominating his minutes, he's doing an absolutely amazing job based on these models. But as we you know, just discussed, these models can sometimes overvalue this exact type of player. And I think the reality is we're not going to know what we have in Dermot you know, with certainty until we actually try him in a bigger role. Now, unfortunately, this year, Mm -hmm. he is injured. He had shoulder surgery in May, I believe, and it was a six-month projected recovery, so that takes him to November and possibly December for recovery. Obviously, that's a few months into the NHL season. When he comes back, I find it very hard to believe that Mike Babcock is going to immediately plop him into a role that he has never had. And once again, Mm -hmm. I think this is going to result in a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth on Leafs Twitter, and I'm not saying that's undeserved either. Because Cody Cece is most likely our second-pair right defenseman, and, you know, that's not a fun time for anyone involved. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot to be determined with Dermot, basically, especially because he is up for an extension, and he's an RFA after this season. So, you know, I think the Leafs really have to figure out, what do we actually have in this dude? Dermot's a guy who could potentially be underpaid going forward because he doesn't put up a lot of points, a lot of offense. But he has notable Mm. offensive impacts, which could mean that the Leafs could potentially get a bargain contract if they believe he can step into a top four role. Um, And they, you know, extend him, expecting him to do that. Because, you know, the the fact is his resume right now doesn't look that amazing. Or at least not by the yeah. metrics that defensemen are typically paid by, which are points and time on ice. Yeah. The, the other way I would put it is if this player did not play in Toronto, how much would you know about yes. him? And I, I think the honest answer is, you know, not all that yep. much. <laughs> and, you know, so, yeah, a little conservatism of that. But I think that's all um, a valid description of kind of the totality of the player and the article will be good and educational for people. So, yeah, stay tuned for yeah. that. Um, so, is there anything else you wanted to discuss before we headed out? We're, we're, we're trying to stick to our one-hour, you know, kind of standard as opposed to the, the monsters we had the last <laughs> three episodes. Yeah, so all Randa did and say, just uh, keep an eye on the top 25 if you're interested in that sort of thing. And, yeah, thank you. Yep. Um, so, you can catch all of mine and Fuleman's stuff uh, at com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RV and AT Fuleman. Thank you all for listening, and we'll catch you in a couple weeks.